Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I am Laura McClass Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. My guest this week is a writer, historian, diarist, and broadcaster. Hugo Vickers is the author of many books about the royal family, the British aristocracy, Cecil Beaton, and other related topics. Really a fount of information on a world that has largely disappeared. Hugo first reached out to me last year when he was finalizing some footnotes for his latest book, Malice in Wonderland which looks at the diaries he kept during the period when he was writing Cecil Beaton's authorized biography, basically 1979 to 1985. We emailed back and forth about the fashion designer Valentina, as I'd worked on the book and exhibition about her, and also about Beaton. Over the last 45 years, Hugo has been an incredibly prolific as a writer and editor, making him ideal for a conversation about following one's passions and interests. Now 69 years old, you'll hear in this conversation how a childhood school trip to St. George's Chapel in Windsor opened him up to a deep interest in history and the royal family. He became a voracious reader of these subjects, learning everything he could while passionately following each name mentioned to new books and more knowledge. While his father wanted him to go into banking, it quickly became apparent that Hugo lacked both the desire and skills to succeed in that. Instead, he took work researching genealogies for guides to the royal family. As he describes in our conversation, he decided to research a famed beauty he had seen mentioned in a book as a teenager. According to all reports, she had disappeared, but Hugo found her living in a geriatric psych ward. Thus began the several-year process of interviewing her and researching her life as the Duchess of Marlborough. His biography of Gladys was published in 1979 to much acclaim. This book led to a quest from Cecil Beaton and the adventure he documents in Malice in Wonderland, which in turn led to the many books that followed. I'm halfway through Malice in Wonderland now, and it is an immensely fun and gossipy read if you're at all interested in the intersecting worlds of royalty, high society, fashion, and Hollywood, through which Cecil Beaton moved. Hugo has approached the writing of history from several different perspectives. He has written straight biographies, genealogies, and histories of places, edited the diaries of historic figures, written introductions or forewords to various volumes, and also ghost-written memoirs. In addition, he is one of the most well-known and highly regarded royal commentators in the UK, who is very in demand for televised events and documentaries on all royal subjects. I couldn't help but ask him his opinion of the crown, which, as you'll hear, he is not a fan of. We also discuss at length his work with the Jubilee Walkway Trust and the Outdoor Trust, which creates accessible walkways in honor of the Queen all across the Commonwealth. As a fellow writer and historian, I really enjoyed learning about Hugo's process and life path, but I think this conversation will be valuable for anyone. There are ways to make your childhood interest your career, if you so desire, and it is really possible to create a life led by your passions and curiosity. Enjoy. Thank you for taking the time. I always like to start with asking about your sort of childhood and upbringing, sort of to see where you came from to, you know, how you got to where you are now. Um, I like to consider myself to be a Georgian. Uh, If I wrote a book, I would call it just a Georgian because I was born in a very funny phase of life, which was when Winston Churchill became George VI's prime minister and, and, and and then, of course, he in in about October 1951, and he died in, and the king died in February 1952. So if I live to be a hundred, it'll be like sort of being born in the reign of William the Fourth or something. It's such an extraordinary long time. So I'm very lucky to having lived most of my life in the Queen's reign, and I was brought up partly in London and partly in Wiltshire. And unfortunately, I'm terribly unfashionable because I came from a what you might call a privileged background. 
um, so everything that everybody hates these days. I um, went to school in London at Hill House, where also Prince Charles went for a bit. And then I went to a prep school, which, um, you know, we had all these, they're rather awful, all these boarding schools. It's a pretty good school, actually, but it's just like, um, I don't know why people have to go through all that. But anyway, and then I went, to, then I was very lucky and I got into Eton College, which is, a, if you're going to go to one of their schools, it's probably the best one to go to. Prep school, as you know, is, is between eight and 12, roughly. And so we had one of those Easter's at school. And my headmaster took me with some other boys to St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. And, and he was that sort of rounded schoolmaster. And he just mentioned a few things about the chapel. And it just like went straight into my head. And I thought, that's the place for me. And, and when I got into Eton, which I wasn't expected to get into, I was meant to go to another school. I Eton College is just literally down the, just the, down the road and over the bridge, over the Thames. And so... Up I went there to explore and that's really how I got started with pretty much everything I've done all my life really. The various interests all fused at the same time, an interest in the royal family, a beautiful architectural place, it's got lovely music, it's got lots of history and so I, I, I eventually became a kind of at school Sunday afternoons are pretty grim and and um, if you unless you're you know you, you like music and you go and play the piano all the time or you go and work in the school of mechanics and you build motor bicycles or something and so I used to go up the hill to St George's Chapel and eventually became a guide there on Sunday afternoons and showed tourists around so if ever I got any skill at all as a lecturer I guess it you know was probably from interrelating at a very young age with the kind of people who came along wanting to be shown around the chapel and um, that was great fun. And, and then after that, after I left school, I went to um, Strasbourg University for a year. And then my father said to me, have you thought about a, a job? And, and, in all, and, and, and he made it quite clear that if I didn't come up with something, he had something in mind in three weeks time. So I then succeeded luckily by chance in meeting a wonderful man called Hugh Montgomery Massingbird. It's a very long name, who was doing uh, genealogical research and things so I kind of went to work with him um, for a time so as to get away from the three-week deadline and then I did a bit of that for about a year and a half and that actually involved me with doing work with the royal household quite a lot because we did a book about the royal family so I met all the private secretaries and some of the royal family too and then after that I did a year in a bank which I absolutely hated just to prove to my father that I didn't have a financial um, brain or that would have been no good and then I um, went off on my own and I should tell you that uh, everything that I did goes right back to everything I've done somehow goes right back to early days and when I was 16 I read about a woman called Gladys Deacon um, who was the Duchess of Marlborough in Chips Channon's diaries and I got very obsessed by her and because she'd apparently been a famous beauty and a duchess and had lived at Blenheim Palace but had disappeared into smoke and uh, where was she? You know, was she alive? Was she dead? What was going on? And so when I, when I was 23, I actually went off to um, try and find her and, and then decided to write a biography of her, which was an extremely arrogant thing to do. And in fact, I did find that she was still alive and she was, was the reason she disappeared was she was in a psychogeriatric hospital. And, uh, and so I went to, I got permission and went to see her and um, talked to her for two years, and then I read that book, and that's really how I got started. I read this description of the Sphinx or Gladys. Um, yeah, yes, because the, the book came out originally in 1979, and then I had the great privilege of redoing it 40 years later, because there was so much more information. You know, we have the internet now, and also, as I like to say, there were a lot of people breathing down my neck 40 years ago, and they aren't breathing at all anymore, so um, that made it a lot easier to say rather more.
Um, I was so terrified. I was desperate to get my book published, you know. Well, I mean, especially at 20 something, you would even be more scared of upsetting people, I was sure. Yes, and, and they had control over things like copyright and, you know, they could have made things very difficult. And they were quite powerful people, some of these people, and some of them had dark secrets as well, which didn't help matters. And so there were things that they were concerned about that they didn't wish to come out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, going into a psychogeriatric hospital at the age of 23, I think I was. Uh, yeah, that's pretty scary, too, by the way, you know. I mean, I never turned, I never turned my back on any of those people in there. I can't even imagine. It must, especially at that time, I'm sure it would be even scarier than maybe probably today in one of those um, wards. Yes, um, that's pretty grim. Um, and, and of course, um, she, she, they said to me, I mean, do, do you want to sort of tell you what it was like the first time I went there? Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I'd, I'd got permission to visit her. I'd been, a, so, okay, so this is like between 1968 and 1975. So there'd been a long period of me being fascinated by her and doing as much research as I possibly could. But, you know, I mean, I was limited. I was very young. I went to the school library. I looked up her name in various books on Proust and things. And every time I looked something up, there seemed to be something rather fascinating appeared. And anyway, so finally I got permission to go and see her. And, um, and so, and she was then 94 and I was 23. And so I was, I arrived at this hospital and the, the superintendent lady took me along endless corridors. I mean, huge, very grand corridors. It's a very famous, it's called St. Andrew's Hospital, Northampton. It's a very famous psychiatric hospital. Basically, as I was going along the corridors and seeing the names on the door, there were all the names of people who, the unknown names of well-known families, people who were not turning up at memorial services and family weddings, and that's where they all were. And uh, and so, and, and it was like, sort of like going into Jane Eyre, you know, there were sort of maniacal screams every now and again and things like that. And then I eventually end, end this unlocking of doors and we finally get into the psychogeriatric part. And so I asked, you know, I said, did you tell her I was coming to see her? And and she said, no, I thought it was better not. She she might just tell you she's she's dead. You might have a totally wasted journey. So we end, end up going into this huge room, um, communal room, where all the other old ladies and gentlemen were out in the garden on that particular afternoon. and. And there she is sitting with her feet up and a cloth over her face. And so I knelt down beside her and then she sort of gradually lifted up this cloth and looked at me with these extraordinary blue eyes I'd been reading about so much and just said, later, 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 and dropped the cloth. That was my first meeting, but things got better. And gradually I got through to her and used to go and talk to her. And we had a really wonderful time actually talking to each other. It was very fascinating. Did she remember a lot? Like how much did her, I guess, her, I don't know what her mental illness um, caused her? Well, she had a paranoid condition and she, you know, a lot of people with a paranoid condition have very good reasons for being paranoid. They think people are after them. They very often are after them actually. <laughs> and uh, she could remember anything she wanted to remember. And it was entirely as to whether or not she was in a good mood as to whether she did or didn't agree to this. She would never really admit who she was. I mean, if I said it, that was disaster. If she said it, that's fine. Um, but, you know, sometimes she would say things like, um, I, would, I would come along later on, with a book on Rodin, let's say, uh, who, who I was fairly certain, well, I knew she knew Rodin. And she would look at this, and then if she was in a good mood, she would suddenly tell you a story about Rodin. And she would suddenly say things like, um, you know, well, he was, um, 
he was of a very lascivious nature, you know, hands all over you. Of course, I never met him. And then I go rushing off to the Rodin Museum and find all her letters to him. And then she said that, uh, she said, you know, he, he didn't like giving things away. Like all French peasants, his fists were tightly closed. But he had given her this particular sculpture, which she had, which was sold after she died. I mean, she'd had it in her house in Oxfordshire. And, she had two actually. Uh, one, one was it was um, marble. It was quite big and um, sold for about thirty-two thousand pounds after she died. Um, so that, that you know, it just depended on the mood really. But every question had to be written down on a piece of paper in big fa black felt-tip pen, big capital letters, which because she was very deaf and she would then read it. And if she was in a good mood, she did indeed answer it. Um, if she wasn't in a good mood, you couldn't get anything out of her. And I remember, what was it she said once? She said something like, I once asked Rodin, I think she said, uh, what, what he thought of Gauguin. And I thought, oh gosh. And then she just said, and he said, you're too young to know. And I thought, oh yeah, she's having fun with me. You know, <laughs> so it was a game. Because you were so young, how did you figure out, how did you know how to approach doing the research and talking to her and, you know, sort of writing the whole book? Well, I guess I didn't really. Um, I mean, I was always quite a good researcher because I, I think that, you know, I, was, I had a good education at school. So, you know, you followed it up, you researched it like you would research anything. And of course, once I started um, writing the book, first thing I did was to make a chronology, like pinning the person down like a Lilliput figure as much as possible all the way through their lives from her birth in 1881. And, and, and you know, you could, I could, in those days, Golly, it would be so much easier now. You just have to go to some ghastly newspaper library in North London and look up the New York Times. And, you know, every time I looked up something, there was something fascinating. I mean, her father, um, Edward Parker Deacon, had shot her mother's lover dead in a hotel bedroom in Cannes in 1892. So there was a huge court case that was highly reported in the New York Times. Henry James wrote about it. I ferreted through the indexes of books and things like this. But right towards the end of the project, after she died, um, uh, there, was, there were five nieces and one nephew. One of the nieces was extremely kind to me and helpful and, and enabled me enabled me to see the papers and eventually actually I, I actually bought her papers, all that was left of them anyway, which included diaries and letters from the Duke of Marlborough and there were letters from Proust and Rodin, God knows what, I mean, just a fantastic treasure trove. And um, eventually the niece sold valuable letters, but I'd had access to them. So they were in the book and I kept the rest of the papers. And about two years ago, uh, they all went to Blenheim Palace to be uh, back where she'd lived before, which I, hope she would approve of just because I think it's there comes a point when you want these things to be safe and I have I have got very nice children in their in their uh, 20s but they wouldn't necessarily know what these things were they could if anything happened to me they could end up in a skip or something you know by mistake so so they are there and being preserved in the archives of Blenheim Palace for future historians to go and look at you know wonderful that's nice yeah and especially because you just got to redo the book you got to use them and I guess yes exactly there comes a time I think when you have to move on it's quite difficult sometimes so behind me is the Baldini portrait mm -hmm. of her but that's I did have the original the original has also gone to Blenheim and I had it copied and so um that's rather a nice thing to have and uh, again you know it was it was a very valuable picture and um it's quite frightening having, having such a valuable picture. I used to, every time I came in, I came running into this room to see if it was still there, you know. Now, if anyone steals the copy, I'll just have another one made. You know? 
<laughs> you can hardly tell the difference between them. I mean, I was going to ask if it was the original. I didn't know. Um, it, it looks very like the original, yes. Okay. And I do have I do have an Epstein offer, which is around the corner, which is a genuine Epstein. And that will go to Blenheim eventually, but only after I die. So hopefully not quite yet. <laughs> Did you, because you said you got interested in into history and the royal family and everything from going to St. George's. Had you always wanted to be a writer as well? I guess so. I think, I think when I was very young, I seem to remember thinking that I thought that it was the most insecure way of of going through life and I wasn't wrong with that. Um, but of course it's terribly interesting. And the lovely thing is that every day that I wake up, even now, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about my day. I'm never quite sure whether it's, where it's going to take me. It's very interesting. I expect you probably get a lot of, there's a sort of statutory boring question that people always ask you. The question that sort of bankers and people ask me is, you know, can you earn a living out of this sort of thing? And and depending how annoyed I am, I either say, well, I'm still around, or else I say, well, I don't know about that, but I can certainly make a life out of it. And they sometimes shudder a bit because, you know, they are well paid, but they have to get up at four in the morning to check the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, or, you know, they, they have all their, they have their company car, they get their children's education, perhaps sponsored and various things like that. But they are prisoners of these banks. And often they hate their life and they just try and make as much money as possible. And then they have to go on expensive skiing holidays and things to make life bearable. Well, I don't have to do, I mean, I do those things sometimes, but I don't have to do them. And I just love my life. You know, it's just very interesting. Makes total sense to me. My father <laughs> is a retired banker. So yes, I know all about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I was lucky. I was lucky because my father was a stockbroker and he, you know, it meant that I didn't, I wasn't going to starve when I was young. And that was a huge help, of course. I've never had to sell a story that I didn't want to sell, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Once you, you know, got that first job doing the genealogy and then started doing this book, was your father accepting? Were your parents accepting of this? Yeah, well, my mother was always accepting of it. She would always said, follow your, your dream, as it were, and don't feel you have to go into this business. And he, he um, well, I think all fathers, I'm a father myself, we, we always want their, your, your, your children to stand on their own two feet. And um, it's an interesting thing with fathers. I mean, when, I, when the book came out and I got some good reviews, it was like it took a friend of his to ring him, ring him up and tell him that it was a good review. And then he was happy, you know, but he did come and see her a couple of times, which was really nice in the hospital. And they had a, the first time he came, they had a hilariously funny conversation. At one point he asked her, this was in 1976, you know, who was going to be the next president of the United States? And she immediately replied, to be quite honest, I haven't been following the campaign, but you can be sure it'll be the worst possible man. <laughs> So he liked that, you know, so they had fun. And uh, um, yes, no, he was very, I mean, he was very interested. I mean, it's a terrible thing, which maybe it's worth saying because, you know, all the people that are gonna listen to this is that years later, when I read my letters that I got from my father at school, they were always desperately trying to encourage me in any way where my interest was going. And of course it didn't seem like that at the time, but when I read them later, then of course I realized. And so, you know, it's just one of those funny things, but I think all fathers, well, not all fathers, but most fathers are, are, are very supportive. So yes, they, they were. And, and as time went on, that, that got better, you know, because um, what was so lovely was that after that book came out, Cecil Beaton, the photographer, read the book 
or had it read to him because he'd had a bad stroke and asked me then to become his authorized biographer. So in a way that was her posthumous gift to me. And that was such an amazing thing to happen because it sort of meant that I, you know, if somebody asks you to, has read a book that you've written and asked you to write their book, and it's not a kick in the teeth, you know, they're kind of like asking you to do the, more of the same really. Mm -hmm. So that was really nice. And did it, I mean, because sometimes when people who are still living ask you to do their biographies, it can be kind of conflicting because they ask you to keep all the positives and not have any of the negatives. Did he, what was it like that with him or how, how did he approach it? Well, that was the first question I asked the editors, you know, the publishers, what was this book going to be published in his lifetime? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we don't know. The, theoretically, it could be, yes, yes, let's, let's go ahead like that. So I'd, I'd gone down to see him in December 1979. My book had come out in October and um, had lunch with him uh, and, and to talk about other things. This was for me to be vetted. And then I, I was told that, yeah, he'd approved of it. And I went away for Christmas and I came back afterwards. I rang up his secretary and said, you know, can I, can I come and see him again? And she said, yes, sure. Well, it's his birthday on the 14th of January. Come anytime you like after that. So I said, well, fine. Well, I'll come on the 15th for lunch. So I had very nice lunch with him and we put various dates in the diary and he took me over to the studio and he gave me various books and showed me the extent of the things that I would be working with and then he died on the 18th of January literally yeah. so I uh, the only good thing about that was that at least people like his secretary knew that he wanted me to do the book and therefore I don't think she would have helped somebody in quite the same way who'd been inflicted on them later. She'd have been wondering the whole time, would he have liked this person? And so that made it, that was great, but it's terribly disappointing as you, I mean, really devastatingly disappointing as you can imagine, because it would have been so much fun to have, even if he'd lived for six months, you know, to have, he would have said things like, you know, well, so sorry, we aren't going to get be able to talk very much because Kathleen Nesbitt's coming to lunch today or something, you know, I mean, or he'd have taken my author picture for heaven's sake, you know, that didn't even happen. So off I went on a long mission then to research his life. I had full use of his papers, more papers, of course, than I would have done otherwise, because, for example, letters from letters he wrote to Garbo, copies of letters he wrote to Garbo, which were in, in a tin trunk under his bed, which even Eileen, the secretary, didn't know about. They all popped up. So I had I had a better access probably than if, if he, as you say, he might well have been saying, oh, no, no, don't bother with that. That's not so interesting. It's a tricky one. I mean, later I wrote a, an authorised biography of Prince Philip's mother, mm -hmm. Princess Alice of Greece. And there was no contract that Prince Philip would read it, but he did read it as a typescript and occasionally he would write rot rubbish nonsense in the margin and um, that didn't mean it necessarily was nonsense so on one occasion I I, I said to the private secretary well we, we, you know would his royal highness like to see 22 pages um, from the foreign office on this matter no you win that point on with the next you know and then sometimes he would write is this necessary which meant that he appreciated it was probably true but it was getting onto slightly tricky ground and the answer was not always, but sometimes it was necessary. So it's a very, I think, you know, if, if you asked me to write your biography and you let me read your diaries and your papers and everything like that, I would consider that, you, you know, you should read the text before it comes out and you could maybe say, actually, could you just, you know, and you'd explain to me why, you know, like my, look, look, my aunt is still alive. She would absolutely hate that story to come out, you know, or something, some small things, as long as the essence is there, most people, 
are fairly trusting and they and they basically say you know sort of you know here it is get on with it but there's usually you know there's bound to be something and there may be a specific reason you know I mean one book I did um I ghosted a book once of memoirs and the only thing that the daughter said was don't for goodness sake say I live in London I said say I live in Monte Carlo for tax reasons you know which is fair enough isn't it mm-hmm. you know? How do you find the difference between, say, editing memoirs, writing a biography, and also the editing diaries? I think it's, it's rather fun editing diaries. Um, I've just edited my own. I, I'm actually usually rather suspicious about people who edit their own diaries. So I didn't change anything. Obviously, I took certain things out. Uh, editing other people's diaries is fascinating because you're you're really there to explain, you know, footnotes, put footnotes in who the people are and lead the story along and just, you know, um, that's that's a lovely process. Um, ghosting books is is quite difficult. I ghosted a memoir of a man called the Baron de Rede. He had the gift of remaining silent in eight different languages. And so I had no idea how to write this book. And I kept saying to him, what sort of books do you like? And he told me various things. And then usually because it had a flattering reference to him in it or something. But at one point I said, what do you really dislike? And I thought he might say President Bush and the Iraq war, something like that, you know. But actually what he said was, it is a man who, after six o'clock at night, he does not wear the white shirt. It is a man who, when he crosses the leg, he exposes between the, the, the sock and the trousers some pink flesh. And I thought, right, now I know how to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sort of tone, you know. But it was all done with conversations with him. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, I, I mean, that particular book, which actually had a, rather a success, it's become a um, collector's piece because only very few copies were printed. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful book, but it's quite, it's quite fun. But, but yes, it, what you, you become a mimic in the end. And it's the same with the one I did on, on Etty Plesh. I mean, at one point I, I, I said, you know, uh, there was a woman called Rosemary Kanzler and I put in a line saying, um, Rosemary and I had, had uh, totally different background, came from totally different backgrounds, which, which is to say that she had no background whatsoever. And her daughter said, well, that's exactly what she thought. And you get, you get to know the person quite well after a time, you know, and you can do that. But, it, but I prefer to write my own books, obviously, you know, and then you're, you're assessing things and you, you know, you, you have to weigh up all the different things because obviously I always say, look, if there's an incident that happens in a room and there are eight people around the table, there actually are nine versions. Each person around the table has his version. And then there's that other elusive version, the truth, which is some people will get closer to it than others, you know. Yes, I've definitely noticed that from interviewing yes. multiple sources about the same things. And Yes, and it's interesting what some people notice certain things and other people don't. I mean, people notice some people are visual. Cecil Beaton, for example, was incredibly visual. You know, he, he could literally, you know, just look around a room and afterwards he would have described exactly what the people were wearing. He was like a moving camera. Uh, other people just simply don't notice what people are wearing or, you know, you, could, you know, they would be very bad witnesses at a car accident or... Uh, it's just strange. Other people um, notice what people say more than what they, what they, what they're looking like and things. You know, must have been uh, very interesting doing all of the editing, going through and the transcribing all of Cecil Beaton's diaries. I've, I have the two, the expurgated and the sixties. Oh yes, yes, and they're wonderful. I've had them for years, and 
I pulled them out again and I read your intros this week. I mean, it sounds like an exhausting process of a lot of, you know, trying to figure things out, you know, the handwriting, but also to be the first person to come up, really get to know him in that way. Well, the handwriting was extraordinarily difficult and I used to have to take it at a bit of a run. And one publisher once said, well, should we just kind of try and keep his sort of idiosyncratic style and um, and not sort of tidy it up too much, uh, like putting in punctuation and things? So I said, in which case, um, he never took the pen off the page. So we'll just join all the words up. Is that what you want? And so that didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, literally, it was so difficult. And there was sort of sometimes, you know, I just had to sort of like read over and over and over to get it. I'm sure though there were one or two times when I didn't get the right words, you know, but but that sort of thing happens. But but um, but it is great fun. And it's, it's great. You know, you get quite good at it after a while if you know your world. I mean, if you ask me to write a book about, you know, well, let's say the war in Iraq, I'm afraid I'd I become awfully monosyllabic because I know nothing about it, but that world, because I've been living in it for such a long time, I, I kind of, I kind of like, you know, if if, some, if if a Helen appears, I've got a pretty good idea which Helen it is, but I don't always, always know. But you know, I'm 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 in there with a clue usually at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You can check, and of course, it's great fun because it's like being a detective. You know, especially now with the internet. If you find a letter from from Madeleine and she lives in the Rue Casimir Delevingne or something, you put those two words into into the internet and sometimes it'll come up and tell you who she is. I love that when you find the person, when you actually do the, you know, when you've got those moments of... Yes, yes. Discovery. It's great. It's great fun that um, uh, um, working out who, who the who the person who the person is. I mean, I wrote a book about Vivian Lee and her mother had a boyfriend called he he kept uh, he kept being called um, yes he was called Tommy uh, she called him Tommy in the di- in her diaries and I knew when Tommy died so I looked through for all the Tom this and Thomas that and then I discovered that there was a man I think he was called Jack Thompson you know which hadn't occurred to me originally but then suddenly you get it and it all fits and then it all works out it's wonderful um, how did that that book come about the Vivian Lee book well, after Cecil Beaton, I, I found that as a man writing about another man, if he behaved badly, I always felt I felt a bit guilty that I'd like, I don't know, been tough on him. And I just thought, actually, I prefer writing about women because I think there's a natural courtesy that comes with a man writing about a woman, which isn't quite the same as a man writing about a man. I don't know. So I thought it would be nice to write. Uh, and also, I thought Vivian Lee was so much more intelligent than the kind of Hollywood type books that had been done before. And, you know, she wasn't what well, in those days we called a manic depressive bipolar, you know. So there was a book by one author where she just said the first 10 chapters, she rises as a star. And then the next 10 chapters, she descends as a manic depressive. And it quite clearly wasn't like that. And, and you know, I found that she she was much more interesting, I thought, anyway, than um, than the way she'd been portrayed. And um, it, it annoyed people like Sheridan Morley, first of all, because it was like getting on his pitch because he was he was always writing about stars. But, you know, I actually did want to take her back into the dressing room and back to Notley Abbey and find out what was going on in her life beyond. I didn't want it to be all about film contracts and and film rows and stage rows and things. You know, so that was, that, yeah, was, that was interesting, interesting to do. And then you did one on Garbo, right? Yes, well, I don't like Garbo um, because that, that came out of an obituary that I wrote about Garbo and a publisher fell on it and decided that I should write about Garbo. So I did a book called Loving Garbo. It's full of lesbians. Mercedes de Costa was the, the famous lesbian friend she had who whose uh, declared um, mission in life was I can get any woman from any man. 
And having read her papers in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia, yes, she did. And so I was sitting there reading all these extraordinary letters while, while scholars were looking at sort of ancient manuscripts and being frightfully excited to, or, you know, to find a person or looking at James Joyce or something to find that in one, in one version there was a semicolon instead of a comma. And, and, and they're very thrilled about that. And I was reading all this amazing stuff about Marlene Dietrich and Ona Munson and all these, and Eva Le Gallienne and things. And, and quite an eye opener that was, that was interesting. That definitely sounds really interesting and fun. Was did you include Valentina in that book? Yes, uh, Valentina does come. I mean, of course, I I'm fascinated by. But there's a lot about Valentina in my new book, Malice in Wonderland, because I had these meetings with her, and you know the story was. You see, the thing was, it was impossible to get to Garbo. I mean, I did sort of try rather half-heartedly. I said to Diana Vreeland once that I thought I would um, push a pram up and down East Fifty Second Street, because she is the sort of person who would talk she'd talk to a puppy or a baby because it wouldn't know who she was. And I could have had a tape recorder in the pram or something. Anyway, I didn't do that. And of course, um, Cecil Beaton by that stage was dead and George Schley was dead. But it was a this strange relationship that, you know, that, that Garbo, Valentina was dressing Garbo. She was like her best friend. God knows how, how much of a friend she was, probably quite a close friend, actually. Um, and then there was George Schley, who at one point moves in and, and, goes off with Garbo and so Valentina is sort of left there and then the extraordinary story of you know when um, Schley dies in Paris in 1964 and Garbo deserts the body and at which point Valentina says I never wish to see this woman again and has the apartment um, exorcised even the fridge where um, where um, Garbo would reach in for a can of beer and and then these two women go on living in the same building for the next 25 years and they must never meet. If you're the lift man, you have to stop when floor 14 is buzzing and floor nine wants to come, you know, you've got to make sure they don't ever meet. And of course, occasionally they do meet and it's all a disaster. And then of course, the fascinating thing at the very end when, um, you know, when, when Valentina died in September, 1989, the lift man told Garbo that she died and she burst into tears. And I thought she won't last long because we've all lost friends, but to lose a really good enemy, it's almost unbearable, you know, it's almost what kept her going. And by April next year, she too was dead. But I did manage to get to see Valentina. I kept bringing her up because people told me to do that. And and um, and I said, it's Hugo Vickers. And she thought I said Descartes, which is this fr French duke that she used to know in Venice. And I kind of half realized that she, she went, oh, my darling, you know, we will we will have a lovely dinner together. You know, you will you will come around. But I'm feeling so ill today. So, so call me tomorrow. And this went on for days, you know. So uh, finally, on one Monday morning, I rang up and she said, oh, you don't know what's happened. And a, and a woman, a maid's voice said, why don't you ask the monsieur to come around and see what's happened? Would you come? Would you come? So I jumped into a taxi and I rushed around to 450 East 52nd Street, finally was admitted into this building and went up in the lift and went into Valentina's apartment. And and everything was strewn everywhere. I thought she'd gone berserk in the night, but there'd been this robbery. And she was sitting on a sofa and telling a friend about her, you know, at this extraordinary meeting. And, and eventually, I mean, I wasn't there for very long, but then I, I, as I left, she kind of said, oh, my darling, thank you for coming, kissed me goodbye. And off I went, thought, I thought, oh my God, she's probably going to die quite soon. And the following summer, I was in Venice. And as I was arriving by boat at my hotel, who was standing waiting to catch the boat? Valentina not only in the same hotel, but also on the same corridor as me. So my, my net went out and I scooped her in and became friends with her. And the next time I went to New York, um, I went to, to see her in the apartment. She showed me all round it. And the whole point in those days of seeing Valentina's apartment was 
you had seen Garbo's apartment too, because they were identical. That's what everybody said. And of course, now you can see Garbo's apartment because the niece died and it was sold about a year ago or maybe 18 months ago. So they did a, the, they did a kind of a video of the whole apartment. So the mystery has all gone. But in those days, you couldn't see Garbo's apartment, obviously. Fascinating it was. Incredible story. Having been, long been a fan and done lots of research on Valentina, I can't even sort of wrap my head around actually meeting her. Well, I also bought um, a cache of um, photographs of Valentina and some, some sketches and things which popped up at Doyle's at some point mm -hmm. a few years ago. And they're rather fun because she was very glamorous, as you know and very dramatic. And, um, and there was that, well, you, you were worked on that exhibition, didn't you? Mm -hmm. yes. I thought that exhibition was wonderful. And, um, you know, the Ed Murrow scene when she shows you how to turn a cocktail dress into a long evening gown or whatever, you know, she was, she was, uh, she was quite something, you know. And I, I'd love to know, I'd love to know how old she was. I, I reckon she was, she could easily have been 100 when she died. She was much older than we think, I think. She kept changing the date, you remember, in the book. It's, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, having had those various documents in my hand, like mm. trying, we would sit there and we'd be like with loops, like trying to see if the dates had been changed on a passport or a visa. And it was hard to, it was hard to tell, especially after that long, with so many years, the, the inks all kind of faded, you know? Yes. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, she, I think that the, um, Wikipedia says she was born in what 1899 or 1901 or something yeah. but I think she was born in 1889 probably as one of those documents says that she certainly was very old by the time I met her in Venice that was 1983 so she was I mean she must have been in she was well into her 80s 90s but she wasn't just and she has to be so old she really has to have done all those things to you know yeah. I believe I'm sure that that's correct you know there was a long period of time where she seemed kind of timeless ageless and then yeah. I but you can usually tell when someone's in their 90s. It's rare for them to yeah, look yeah. younger. Yes, exactly. Anyway, all great fun. <laughs> she is a wonderful person. Having done all of these sort of, whether they're biographies or ghosted memoirs or diaries of different people, has learning about those people's lives affected how you've wanted to live your life or inspired you to do different things? Or It certainly has in many ways. I mean, Gladys, as I call her, the Duchess of Marlborough, she said to me when I was, when I went to see her one day, she said, young people need somebody to breathe life into them and make them think in a different way. And I think that's what she did for me. Uh, I, I hadn't ever met anyone like that before. I mean, why, how, how could I, how would I? you know, and, and, and it sort of opened up a whole new way of thinking. And, and with Cecil Beaton, particularly, I think, visually, I mean, I think it, it, it altered my taste quite a lot. And um, this room certainly didn't look like that before before I worked on, on, on him. You know, I, I think it, yes, I think the answer is yes. And I think, I don't know, I hope we all learn something from studying other people's lives. I'm not sure that it makes us go through life any more efficiently or whether you, I don't think you necessarily lead a better life or, or, or that it solves any problems for you. But I think it does extend your horizons. And I think it's always fascinating to, to learn about those worlds and to, you know, if I go to Blenheim Palace, you know, I mean, for me, it's like I can sort of see all the things that happened there when she was there. It's like a whole extraordinary experience. I always feel I'm walking on a magic carpet. And of course, likewise, if you, you know, like when you're doing research, if you go to different places, like where the, where your subject has lived, you know, or occupied that space, it's kind of, it's very, very fascinating. I find it hard to explain that really, but it's just that, I think it just means that 
just as some people, if they're very spiritual, they 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 can see things in it in a different in a different light, and they can, and they sort of like get different vibes from things. And me, with me, like geographically, almost it becomes timeless. And if I if I went to um, Caparola, for example, where Gladys lived when she was a, where her mother lived, which is just north of Rome, this beautiful beautiful place with wonderful gardens and things, you know, I I can sort of almost transport myself back into that era, you know. And similarly, I suppose the way we all live at, at home, you know, I personally like to live with um, rather old fashioned furniture and I buy, I buy furniture that belong to some of these, I have, I have um, bought things which belong to the subjects and, and um, sort of immerse myself in their sort of lives in a funny way. I love that. If I had the opportunity, I would definitely be buying <clears throat> You know, I have little things like I have notes actually hanging on the, over there is a telegram from George to Valentina that just says yeah. everything's going to be all right. And Excellent. Yeah, and you're just like you know those little things that are that help you get a little bit of the well, the feel of the person yeah. and yes and, and the atmosphere and uh, yeah no I think that's that's right and and of course it's 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 great fun when you uh, the the other day I mean I think it's all right to talk about it now because there's going to be a big sale of things to do with the Sitwells um mm. Edith Sitwell Osbert and Sir Cheverell and um in the sale is is the hat that she, she was wearing with the ostrich feathers that Cecil Beaton photographed her in I thought oh my goodness here's the actual hat I never thought I'd I'd actually hold that in my hands, you know. It's great fun when you, you come across these things, you know, from the past. I, I very often like to buy one thing in connection with the subject that I'm working on. I went with Garbo, I bought a little, a little Dimitri Bouchen. Now, Valentina had a lot of Dimitri Bouchens. I really regret missing the Valentina sale because I don't think that things were going for very much in that sale, could have got quite a lot. Um, do you remember that sale? I mean, I've read about it in. Well, she had a lot of Dimitri Bouchens, and then I bought three more which belonged to Boris Cockno in a sale in Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered when I was working on things to do with the Duchess of Windsor that Dimitri Bouchen had, um, he was living in Paris and he was a Russian and he had um, decorated her bathroom. So when they had the big Windsor sale in, in 1998 in New York, I came over with the purpose of buying one Dimitri Bouchen from her bathroom. And in those, at that sale, people just wanted things with coronets on them or pugs or things that very identifiable with what they had the image of the Duchess of Windsor. And they completely missed her sort of rather interesting taste. I came home with 26 of them for not very much money. That was so exciting, you know? And then subsequently I belonged, this may be not relevant to what we're talking about, but I belonged to a thing called Art Price which means that you put in your favorite artists and wherever there something is being sold anywhere in the world, it comes up. And some, suddenly masses of Bouchens appeared in a funny little auction house in the north of Paris, um, just north of Paris, and not, not, a, not a metro ride, but a little, little suburban train ride for about 15 minutes. And then you, you come to this place and, and they, they were going for, I mean, it cost more to frame them, frankly. And I, I bought, I've, got, I've got so many Bouchens now. I've got Bouchens all over the place. <laughs> I've got about 50 of them. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, so that's rather fun. So one thing leads to another, you know, and mm -hmm. takes you to funny places, which is great. The magic of finding like a little, you know, mention of something, doing the research in it, and then that leading to a whole new project or vision, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. You, I think it's a sort of, well, I've always thought that with writing a book, that you need to have an island on which you're reasonably stand. So for example, with Cecil Beaton, 
I knew quite a lot about the royal photography. You know, I'd seen all the pictures he'd taken of the Queen and the Queen Mother and Princess Marina and people. But at that stage, to be absolutely honest with you, I knew nothing about Truman Capote or Enid Bagnold or any any of the other people that he was involved with. But now, I mean, you know, I'm a great expert on all of them. And, and it was just a wonderful way to move out. So I think, you, you know, you... I don't know whether you, you know, find this, but people, Disraeli said, if I want to find out about something, I write a book about it. It's, it's good to, 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 to feel secure in one element of it, but then to go out into the unknown and it's very rewarding. And I, I somehow do, maybe this, I've got some psychological flaw. I need a link, you know, I need, a, I, need a, I need to be able to get there step by step. And if I can do that, then I'm, then I'm fine and I'm happy. I mean, you've done so much about the royal family and you said that that sort of originated with St. George. Yes, well, I suppose the interest in the royal family had started off when I was a child. And actually, um, have you been to, you've been to London, presumably, haven't you? I grew you? up, I actually went, I grew oh. up in London from when I was seven to 18. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, Madame Tussauds, I think there was another influence that I had in my day, when I was a child, they had all the royal family, all the cabinet, all the VC holders, and they had a wonderful guidebook which gave little biographical details of each one. I think that was one of the things that started me off. And at prep school, in the, there was a little library which had a book called Concise Universal Biography in two volumes, and it had everybody in it, published in about 1935, everyone in it from Jesus Christ up to Fred Astaire. And it, and it had little little potted biographies. And so I used to study this. And years later, when I revisited the school, my markers were still in place. I don't think anyone ever looked at those books. Except <laughs> me. Um, I have copies of them now. I bought them later. Um, and so I think that, that, that in a way that was the start. And of course, St. George's Chapel made it all real. In fact, you know, one afternoon when I was 16, I was put on a door where they were building a little chapel to bury um, King George VI years after he died. And the Queen and the Queen Mother came round the corner one after another to, to visit this chapel. And that's when I first met them both, you know, two in one go, it was kind of extraordinary. And so, so it sort of developed from there. And so, so and, and now I do quite a lot of things to do with the, the royal family, to do with um, lots of commentating, obviously, and things like Prince Philip's funeral I did for ITN, you know, I was, the, I was in the studio so that they would come to me and ask aspects of the story and that sort of thing. And I've done, I did that for when Charles and Diana got married and various other things over the years. And then there are a lot, we have lots of documentaries and, and they, even some in America, they I, I apparently occasionally pop up in these things. And then of course, I did have my Andy Warhol moment, which was when Stephen Colbert invited me to come over and advise him about how to uh, comport himself if he got invited to the wedding of William and Kate Middleton. And so I had my my 15 minutes, or well, actually it was longer than whatever the program, and that was quite fun with him. And and I I, I decided, I was luckily was told that actually he, he doesn't like people to try to be funny with him. You know, he doesn't like to compete with him in that way. So I thought I'd just play it, play it totally straight. And uh, but I was just being extremely rude to him whenever he stepped out of line and things. And and um, I did have fun with that. And, and some people have actually, have you ever seen that? I'm no, I haven't. That. Well, you can get a clip of it because um, at one point I, I was, <laughs> I just couldn't resist it. I, uh, and I said to a friend I'm, the night before, I'm gonna try this one on him. I, I was wearing a stiff collar and, and, an, and an old Etonian tie and a pinstripe suit. And I said to him, you know, we were talking about what he might wear. And I, so I said, um, so will you rise to a stiffy on the day? And he, 
He said, well, would that be appropriate? I said, I think absolutely you should be wearing a stiff collar. And I don't think he knew whether I, whether I was sending him up or, you know, th that was a good moment. Yeah. <laughs> Have a look. <laughs> I will, that, that sounds great. Um, <laughs> do you enjoy doing television and all of the commentating? Yes, yes, I do now, yes. Uh, I, I mean, now I think I've, I'm a bit, I'm sort of become a seasoned character. So I kind of like, I'm not gonna, well, they probably will trick me one day, but they, I, I, I'm not sitting there worried about what I look like or whether I can get, I just, I answer the question that I want to answer, not necessarily the ridiculous question they ask me. Mm -hmm. So yes, I do, I do enjoy it. And also, I mean, I'm lucky because actually I'm usually treated as an expert and therefore basically they're trying to get information out of me. I'm not like a politician having to defend a policy which has been inflicted on him by some other MP. <laughs> you know, he has to go on television and defend it when he doesn't really believe in it at all and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's quite good. I do like doing that. Why do you think that the public, both in the UK and in America and probably elsewhere, are still so fascinated by the royal family, you know, the crown and everything? Well, I hate the crown. The crown I really, really hate um, because it's beautifully written, acted and everything, but it's so dishonest. It's, it puts people into false situations. I've written little books about that, attacking it. Um, I don't know why. I think I suppose it's I suppose in a way it's like it's like the people always brought up with this sort of fairy tale idea of kings and queens and princesses. I mean, all little girls want to be not all little girls, but a lot of little girls want to be princesses. And they have this sort of dream of, about it. And there, there are these people. And of course, you can follow them literally from the moment that they're born, you know, whereas other public figures pop up already, already fully baked, you know, with their pasts disguised. And, you know, with the present queen, you know, who's now 95, we, we've seen her as a little girl in a tiny little car. We've seen her with her mother and her sister. We know exactly where she comes from. We can completely trust her and we can follow her right through every stage of life. And that's rather interest, interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. I haven't watched The Crown. And I just, at this point, it seems like there's far too much to watch to catch up. But do you, do you think they just change things to make it more sensationalized? Well, I suppose that I suppose that you have to have conflict in a in a series. You know, it would be very boring if you didn't. But why do it about real people? Why mm -hmm. why make up a scene when Prince Philip is refusing to kneel before his wife at the coronation when he was perfectly happy to do that? I mean, how can you do those things? And some of the things they do are really unkind and really unfair. But I suppose basically it's been very successful, as you know. I mean, it keeps winning awards and they do get good actors and actresses and things, and it's it's well filmed. But it's it's um it's just I do think there's also a Republican theme underneath it that at one point I thought when um uh when Claire Foy was playing the Queen, uh, that they were going to try like make the Queen look really good and then make all the others look ludicrous so that you could say, okay, well, while we got the Queen, fine, but after that let's get rid of them all. But now, um, then Olivia Coleman took over. And to my view, I mean, she's a good actress, but she has a very cheeky smile. So in order to look like the queen, she was always sort of rather sort of downturned mouth and looking rather, I think you'd rather dislike the queen as portrayed by Olivia Coleman. That, that was my feeling anyway. And, um, but I think that they, it's got worse. And I think it's, it's to, so it's undermining them very much in a very subtle way. And of course, unfortunately, people believe it to be true. They think that this is the real story. So because it's, it's visual and it's gone into people's heads and mm -hmm. it's, um, it's very, very unfair. I mean, there was one episode where they blamed Prince Philip for the death of his sister, which was absolutely monstrous, had nothing to do with him at all. And um, 
they had his father shouting at him, it's because of you, boy, that I'm burying my favourite child. Well, he, he, and his, he and his father travelled out to Darmstadt together after she was killed in the plane crash. You know, it's really monstrous. And I know Prince Philip was terribly upset about that. And, and uh, he wasn't displeased when I popped up and started saying, telling them the truth of the story, you know, because he couldn't really do it. But I, I'm acting independently, obviously. You know, as a historian, it's always been one of the things that's annoyed me the most when there's like a, hist a film based in, you know, history or something, and they don't make it clear what's not, what's, what's been changed. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, having even tried to write a script myself for something that's still ongoing, and then people read it and they're like, well, you need to do this. And you need to, I'm like, but that's not what happened. And I don't feel comfortable. I think if you, if you change the names, you know, that's another matter. You know, you can do a kind of thing. If they, you know, if they had a, a character with sort of his ears sticking out and sort of you know, looking a bit like Prince Charles and they called him something else, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, I, you know, we'd all know it was sort of based on, but actually to make it into a real thing to sort of dig around in the private lives of these people and sort of make it all up and make it worse than it was. That's, I don't know why they have to do that, but it's been immensely successful so I'm in a minority but I keep going and I love picking holes in it and they're quite it's quite easy to do um, you find lots of lots of mistakes I mean not only mistakes of the script in the script and the story but also you know you get um, Prince Philip uh, shooting pheasants in Scotland when they didn't shoot pheasants in Scotland and uh, silly things like that and wearing the wrong medals and things and they've got such a big budget they could jolly well get it right not that difficult you mm -hmm. know so I try to discredit them. It's too bad that, yeah, they went a more sensationalized route and instead of, they should have just hired you as a consultant, you know, something like and gone. Well, they wouldn't have wanted that because they, and they wouldn't have listened to me and I wouldn't have done it. They did get in touch with me at one point and I kind of said, I didn't really know what, what um, you expect of me, but I'm perfectly happy to come along and have a meeting. Um, but I, no, I, I don't, it's much easier for me to be the, um, you know, discrediting them rather than colluding with them. Although, you know, I could have given them some quite good stories actually, yes. But I mean, sometimes the real truth is more interesting in the end. I mean, why? I mean, the, just give you one example. With Mrs. Thatcher, you know, famously, Margaret Thatcher was done down by the Conservative Party, you know, at the end of her time of office, as it turned out to be. And so you get um, a scene where Geoffrey Howe, the Chancellor has just resigned as um, has just resigned as Foreign Secretary um, is lumbering out of bed and he goes off to the House of Commons and he delivers his speech. Yes, that's more or less what happened. Mrs. Thatcher's looking fairly grim on the front bench. Yes, fair enough, that also happened. Going back, um, uh, um, meeting all the ministers who say, "Well, yes, Prime Minister, I'm right behind you," um, and yet, but there are some rumblings on the back benches. Well, fair enough, that sort of thing did happen. And then you go back. Then Dennis Thatcher, her husband, says come on, the game is up. Well, we, we know from history that that also happened. And then in The Crown, she suddenly says, I have a card up my sleeve. And she goes to see the Queen and asks her to dissolve Parliament in order to save her skin. Well, that did not happen. I mean, why did they do that? Do you see? In the end, they're rewriting history because for all the people who will never pick up a book and read it, you know. Well, I dread to think all the, you know, children, I mean, youngsters um, studying politics, you know, probably say, well, then, then she then she called an election, you know, or tried to call an election, you know, no, she did not. Anyway, it wouldn't have worked anyway, because it wouldn't have made any difference, um, you know, because, because you, if she's being 
put out as leader of the party. That's not, the election wouldn't help, wouldn't help her. But anyway, that's beside the point. But she yeah. didn't do it. It almost sounds like a, you know, somewhat something like spitting image could have gotten away with something as ridiculous as that, but not. Um, yes, yes. I mean, and again, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a disclaimer at the top, you know, saying that this is like made up or whatever. Because actually, they want you to think it's it's true. I think in a funny way. And it'll get worse as we get closer to the present day, as you can imagine. I don't know how far they're going to go, but they've gone far enough in my my mind. <laughs> yeah, because they're with Diana and Charles, right? Yeah. Exactly. They've got, and they've got good people. They've got a, they've got Elizabeth Debicki, who was in the Night Manager, playing Diana. Um, they've got, um, I think, Dominic West. I think is playing um, Prince Charles at some point. All these different people. So good actors and actresses. But anyway, I, I really hate it. Well, I'm glad that you're around to write books correct in articles correcting it. Um, so at least some people will, you know, learn the truth. Even if you enjoy it, you know, see so you, you as an intelligent person could watch an episode of The Crown and think, well, that was, that was quite fun. And then you could read a couple of pages from me to find out what really happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, my daughter, for example, loves The Crown and she then reads my chapter to see what happened because a lot of people start googling afterwards and and to see you know well who is that person and with did they really do that and and they must get into such a muddle I, I mean like you know we we writers we try to do we try to do that work for them and so put it all in one place you just mentioned your your daughter how how is it always how has it been for you to balance family like personal life and all of your writing and history work? I think it's been all right because uh, because I work at home so to some extent I've probably seen more of them you know than I would have done if I was in in, in an office and I never minded when they were little um, you know if they well it was lovely when they came running in when they came back from school but if I had to do a school run or I had to do something you know um, I think that those sort of interruptions are very important so I hope it's been all right now it's it's rather nice because my daughter Alice has been doing a lot I've been doing a lot of zooms for, for, for a book and she transcribes them you know I pay her obviously but she she does that and um, she also came with me to Florence to Fiesley to research in the Berenson archives and and um, when I was doing this recent book um, she she transcribed a lot of the diaries my diaries I used to just photo, photo, photograph the page and then send it to her and then she you know she she typed it up which was a huge help and rather fun. So it's been nice actually working with, with all three children, you know, as they've grown up, um, especially during lockdown, because they, I do another project, which is I put in walkways into Commonwealth countries. Um, and so they have to be, we couldn't travel. So we did, decided to make virtual walkways. So they would research the, the points that you'd see. For example, if you went to Dominica and you'd never been there before you came off a boat, you follow my route, we'll take you along the quayside, through the market, past the river, into the botanical gardens, and then back through the, the town, past where Jean Reese's house was, but is no more. That's because they just pulled it down. But I would mark all these things. And so you'd have had a good walk. Um, you'd have got to know Roseau quite well. And um, it would have celebrated the Queen as head of the Commonwealth. And so we've been doing it virtually. So then when we, when it comes, when we all come out again, all that we need to do is to put the markers into the ground, basically, which really the islands um, should make a bit of an effort and perhaps do that themselves. You know, we can provide them with the markers. So we'll see. How did you get involved with this walkways project? Because um, 
I've always had another side of my life, which is an administrative side. And years ago, I worked for the people who were running the Silver Jubilee celebrations in London. And a wonderful man called Max Nicholson decided to, um, uh, he wanted to get people walking along the south bank of, of the Thames, which in those days was very derelict and still had all the sort of old warehouses and cranes and things. But as, as it developed, um, basically by calling it the Queen's Silver Jubilee Walkway and getting the Queen to open it, it if he called it the Max Nicholson walkway, it wouldn't have happened. Um, and then um, people in the, G in the GLC building, which is just off Westminster Bridge, they were controlling the planning applications. And if you wanted to build Hayes Galleria, you'd be told, yeah, fine, go ahead, but you've got to do your riparian stretch. You've got to make the bit beside the river walkable. And everybody did that. And it took 17 years to go along. And it's now fantastic, vibrant, full of people, um, you know, wonderful atmosphere down there. So I got involved at that time in a very junior capacity. And then as time went on, I was always in touch with the people who were running the walkway. And rather charitably, they wanted a, a younger man to take it over in 2002. Well, if you'd seen my trustees, that wasn't, um, and they were getting quite old by that stage. Uh, and then luckily, a, a very good man, um, who's a great walking expert, who's actually even called Jim Walker, that's his actual name, um, got involved. And between the two of us, we then carried it forward. And then in 2012, I closed down that committee because we used to have to do, we used to have to file reports and had annual general meetings and they always wanted to have a lunch whenever they met and you know, it was, just wasn't practical. And then Jim and I set up another little organization, which is basically more or less just the two of us, to be honest, to put them into the Commonwealth. We asked the Queen's permission, could we put them in the Commonwealth? And she said, yes. And she actually opened one in Malta in 2015 and, um, She's opened about eight actually since I took it over, which has been fantastic. And it was great fun. I was forced with Jim to, um, to go through the Caribbean islands for seven weeks once in 2016 it was, I think. Yeah. And uh, forced to go from island to island and trying to persuade people to put these things in. And we, we'd like to get a marker into the ground because that kind of commits them to doing it. Yeah, I think we've, 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 by the end of this year, we'll have the virtual walkways all in place, I hope. And then next year, which is the year of the Platinum Jubilee, should be a time to do a big incentive. Because, you know, if you want to do something for the Queen, this is an ideal way of doing it because it's a gift to the Queen for the use of the general public, which is what she likes. Mm -hmm. And it, it's good for tourism, it's good for health, it ticks so many different boxes. And it's really not that expensive, actually, as relatively, and it's wonderful. So how many have you opened so far and how many have you done? Or? Uh, well, we've, I, I, I can't quite remember how many we've got fully done now, but I suppose it's about, maybe it's about 16, I'm not sure. But this, this, by the time we finished, it'll be 70 or more because we do them all, there are 50, 52 or more Commonwealth countries and then there are quite a lot of overseas territories and protectorates. But I spent a lot of the time last year tidying up what the children had done. They, they provide me with information. And, and, we've, and we have a website, commonwealthwalkways.com um, or whatever it's called. And, um, and then if you look on that, we've done about half of them. I think half of them are up. Sometimes they need photographs, but the, the, the descriptions, we've certainly done all the Pacific area, done quite a lot in the Caribbean. Um, and we've got, well, I can tell you, we've got walkways in the Gold Coast of Australia, Wellington, um, um, Malta, Ascension Island, um, Banff in Canada, Edmonton in Canada, 
and and one and Samoa and one or two other places, you know, and they, they it's rather fun because they can be as long or as short as you need, and because in England we've got them in Glasgow and Windsor and and um, all sorts of we're doing one in Birmingham especially because they're going to have the Commonwealth Games there next year, and um, what you really want to do is to make a really good um, route for walking, and so and the, the Queen will go to the Commonwealth Games next July and hopefully she will open this route. She probably will, all being well. But uh, we were given lots of advice about things that you had to mark. But I don't know if you've ever been to Birmingham, but it's got that famous spaghetti junction. And yeah. one of them, Jim said, no, we don't want anyone walking under spaghetti junction. So Jim and I went on a clandestine visit to Birmingham to, and he devised a route which people will actually want to walk. And it takes you through gardens, like rather like Regent's Park, and then through the university complex. Then you walk along a canal, because Birmingham's got more canals than Venice or, or um, Amsterdam. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then you go through Victoria and Birmingham, the sort of Joe Chamberlain part, huge, massive, great buildings. Then through the jewellery quarter, which is, which is a vibrant place. I and mean, then more jewellery in the world was made in this part of, in Birmingham than anywhere else, I think, at one time. And then there is a slightly... A difficult bit from the station getting back to the to the park that I originally mentioned there's really there's no really brilliant way of you know it's just not much fun that bit of the walk to be honest um but you can't yeah maybe they can make it better later but anyway most of it is wonderful and I've done it twice now and um and so we'll you know hope to go ahead with that I mean if the markers are being made and once they're made we'll get them into the ground and get it all going sounds really wonderful I that's, you know, that sounds like a totally different experience of Birmingham than I've had. Um, yes. It's a long time since I've been to Birmingham, but I definitely don't remember it being, you know, beautiful gardens and interesting history. I mean, I saw some interesting history, but I remember a lot of it being quite grim. Well, that's being given a big facelift at the moment because of the Commonwealth Games. So a lot of it's probably changed since you were there because a lot of it's changed very recently. And the thing is that, that um, if you should go to Birmingham again, you will now have a route which will actually do it all for you. It will make sure you do see those gardens and go down the side of the canal. Because, you know, unless you're, I wouldn't have known where it was. And when we did one in London, Jim did a, a marvelous 60 kilometer route, which was, it's called the Jubilee Greenway, which goes, starts at Buckingham Palace and it goes through Hyde Park, Kensington Gardens and up through Bayswater. And then right along the Regent's Canal, right up to Victoria Park, past the Olympic site, where most of the Olympics happened and down, right down to Beckton, and then it crosses the river and goes from Woolwich and all the way back along to Westminster and back to Buckingham Palace. Now that route, um, I hadn't been along there. I mean, it was an eye opener, you know, and when I was doing this, he does the technical and uh, all, all the, he maps out the route and then I do the historical side and I actually look up the buildings and and, and try to tell you something that may have happened there before that you don't see now, like, I don't know, that EastEnders was filmed in this part or based on that, or, or that the, with the, or, you know, in Westminster that the coronation procession passed this point or all sorts of funny things that you can't actually see and you make it more interesting. And it's fascinating, I love doing it. And actually, if you go to Malta, if you go to Valletta and you cross the bridge, there is a panel, panoramic panel, we do them as well. And the history of Malta is written by me. So for once, you know, it's written on, a, on, a, on something which will probably survive a very, very long time. And, um, and, and you know, it's the first thing there's a tourist that you will see as you go into Valletta. 
um, and my words. So that's exciting, no? Yeah, it's really exciting. And do on the mark is the information on the markers or is it on the website or on it's audio? On the, or, we, or, we, we, we've dabbled in various yeah. ideas of, about sort of at one point having apps and things which you know could speak to you. It's, it was complicated, not many people were accessing them. So, you know, you can do the tours virtually at the moment, most of them. They're most of, actually, even at the moment, the map is there for all the routes. But um, some of them are complete and some of them aren't, but they will be quite soon. No, so the marker you, you'd come across and then you'd you'd need to look it up. I mean, you could print you could print off a map before you went on the walk. Obviously, the 60 kilometer one, I think I used to, you know, go to a tube station, pop up and walk as far as I could. And uh, actually, I, I, I mean, I think walking is, I mean, Jim is a huge protagonist for walking. Said He always says, no decision should ever be, no big decision in your life should ever be made before you take a walk. It's very good for you, you know. And so, you know, and you see things differently as you're walking along and it's very good. Everything about it is good. It's better than running, I think, and it's better than cycling and it's free as well. You know, you can, anywhere you go, you can walk. Obviously, we have to make sure that the routes that we recommend are safe. In some of the African countries, um, we've got to make sure we don't sort of send people walking where lions are going to eat them and things like that, you know, or that they're going to get mugged. Mm -hmm. If that's that is always a possibility, you know, I wouldn't be putting one in New York and driving, sending people through the middle of Central Park, you know, at least not at night anyway. Not at night. At the moment, it's pretty safe during the day, but uh, not yes. at the night, I'm sure. But it's a new, th it's a different way of looking. I've learned a lot. Through, it, through this, you know, because I've learned a lot about these different countries and how they got their independence and what happened to them after that and the political situations in these countries. And it all links in, of course, with the, the Queen and the royal family and because the Commonwealth's terribly important to the Queen. And so it's, it's, it's been wonderful, really wonderful. Uh, we probably be, should be able to finish most of it next year. But of course, if anyone else wants a walkway, you know, each country should have one, but I mean, Canada probably have end up with maybe six in Australia, you know, it'd be nice to put one in every state, even in Canberra, which is not the easiest place to walk. Their tourist office is about a good 10 minute taxi ride out of the centre of Canberra, it's ridiculous. And you just don't really want, I mean, it's just nothing, it's just, there's not much of Canberra to walk around. It's, it's an artificial city built, you know, in the middle of the desert. But you get to know these places. It's great. Sounds really interesting to do. I love doing that kind of really focused research for, you know. Yes. Well, half the fun of research is, is, is going to the place. I mean, and going back to Garbo and George Schley and Valentina, when Schley died, I mean, he had, they had had dinner with Cecile de Rothschild in, the Rue Faubourg Saint Honoré, and they and they were staying at the Creon Hotel. Well, I went to dinner with Cecile de Rothschild, and I worked out, of course, that they would have had to walk because if they got into a taxi, they would have got in through one door and come out the other side, and they would have been back at the Creon. He then, of course, went off and wanted to smoke a cigar and had a heart attack and and died. And Garbo went back to the hotel, but actually. You know, unless you go there, you might have made the mistake of saying, well, they drove back to the Creon or something. And anyone living there would say, well, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. So it's very important to go and have a look. And it's also terribly interesting. It just broadens your horizons the whole time. And equally, of course, with what I've done with my new diaries is, you know, going to meet the people, even if they don't tell you very much, you get to know what they're like, don't you? I mean, as, as, as people, you know, the way they respond to you is very often the way they would have responded maybe to Cecil Beaton, you know. i tell you who was amazing was Irving Penn. I mean, I went to see him. He rang up one day and I've written to lots of people in New York and I was in New York and he rang up one day and said he had a 
few minutes between shoots and would I come mind coming downtime. And I just thought that he was so inspirational, the way he talked. Literally, when I left his big loft where he was photographing and went out into the street, it was like people were just walking around me and they just meant nothing to me at all. I was still listening to what he said and somehow he could control the atmosphere. But other people you go and see and you think, oh my God, they're awful, you know. They're sort of really tiresome and horrible. I mean, a school friend of Cecil Beaton's, I went to see him and I thought, God, with a friend like that, you know, I mean, just you just you could just see what he must have gone through with this person at school, you know, odious. What uh, sort of time range are your journals from, your diaries from that you're publishing? Well, I started keeping a diary. Um, there are a few which go right back to childhood. But when I started working on Gladys, the Gladys book, I found that people were telling me things which were terribly interesting and which were not actually really relevant to my work in hand, but I thought they ought to be written down. Mm -hmm. I also think keeping a diary, so they, those go back to 1975, I suppose, and they're pretty, they keep going right the way up to the present day. And I've got a big safe with full of them, full of these little brutes. I slightly take the Mae West line about diaries, you know, you keep a diary and one day it'll keep you what she said. Also, I feel that it has a help sometimes to trust your judgment. I don't know, do you do you keep a diary? I mean... I do, but I'm not as good about writing events of things. It's more just emotional, getting emotions out so I can get, move on with the rest of the day. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's a very good thing. But I think diaries can be whatever you want them to be, and that's one purpose, definitely. I found that it was very interesting, particularly when I was much younger, you know, what, what I thought about people or of course obviously I mean in the these new diaries I, there's nothing nothing about my private life at all in them I, I cut all that out in fact it was quite a, a horrific experience reading through these diaries and all the other I mean pages and pages of sort of you know kind of introspective rubbish <laughs> or uh, sort of things about people and thinking and actually I even wrote to uh, one ex-girlfriend of the time and apologized for what I must have been like and she accepted that and, and we had quite an interesting exchange about it because you know I was so busy writing the book and I was so I was so it was such a huge challenge that you know it was very difficult to have a you know private life at the same time some some of the time anyway but again you can tell in these diaries you know if you meet somebody whether you you know you were as it were I'm talking about obviously when much younger, but whether you were attracted to the person, you could read back in the diary and you can catch yourself out and say, oh, well, you were, you know, or, or perhaps you weren't, you know, or you only saw the point of the person later on. It's very, very interesting. And then, of course, if things go wrong, there's endless reams of stuff about that as well. So I don't know, but it's, it's just very interesting. I did, I did do quite a lot of self-psychoanalysis, I must admit, when rereading the diaries. But I do think also helps you to trust your judgment. Each time you write, it's like a day gained as opposed to a day lost. When I read other people's diaries, I'm transported back into, you know, I can follow their lives in a way that I couldn't if they hadn't written a diary, you know. Mm. I mean, Cecil Beaton is very, there were there were a hundred and, huh, what was it now, 150 diaries or something. I read all of them. I'm the only person apart from him who's read all of them, I think. So I get to know him quite well. It's just so interesting what, and because with, so I can give you an example with Cecil Beaton, for example, he he didn't like being controlled by people. So when he went out to do My Fair Lady, the film of My Fair Lady, George Cukor 
was in control of him and could stop him leaving Hollywood. And could can, and so you can see him boiling up for a row with George Cukor. And one day he finds a way of having the row because you, you will find in life that people very often, they explode about something, but it's not the actual thing. You have to try and work out what they're really exploding about because they, they can't quite tell you that. So they wait until you, you, you fail to notice something or you don't you don't answer something in time and then they kind of get at you and so then when he was doing Coco I thought hang on a minute another row is coming he's he's about to have another row and I could see it boiling through the diaries and that was with Alan J Lerner who at that point had him un, under contract I suppose and so that was quite funny yeah so you get to know people quite well through the diaries and you get to know yourself quite well through diaries too I think I know that Cecil Beaton wrote his in the morning right when he woke up and then... I suppose so. Um, it's difficult. I think he did probably, but I think that he wrote it. And also when he was traveling, he wrote it on airplanes and things. So, so different times. I mean, I write mine whenever I can find a moment to do it. And I think the only thing I would regret is that probably I have spent an awfully long time writing this diary, which would have been otherwise spent reading good books. So you can't always do everything. And also it's very difficult to write the diary when you're writing the book. When you're researching it, fine. But when you're actually writing it, I think it's a little bit like you're practicing the piano, but when you're on, and then you go to the concert hall and you play. So when you're writing the book, you can't always be writing. Anyway, there's nothing to say except, you know, I had a good day writing today or something. I mean, you know, you're actually, the energy must go into the book rather than into the diary. So there are phases when they don't, when it doesn't work quite so well. Do you have a daily structure to your work? No, I don't. I get it done somehow. I think I would say to you that I work all the time unless I'm doing something else but quite often I am doing something else like today I didn't get any work done as such because I had to do these other things but it's quite nice to go out and have other experiences of course I claim to be one of the very few people that you will ever meet who can earn an honest living in bed um, because I quite often write in bed particularly in the winter I get up I get I you get my laptop my books around spread it all out and off I go you know great some people can't do that. I love that. My husband's always, yeah, been like, how do you do that? Because I write lying down um, yes. on my couch or up on my bed. And that's how I have to do it all. Well, I, I, I would, in an ideal world, I would like to get up and go and have breakfast and unseen hands would come and revamp the bed and sort of prepare everything. And then I would get back into this wonderful bed and, you know, and work away. It's always worked for me. So I'm glad to know that it works for you as well. <laughs> yes, it doesn't work for everybody, but it does work for quite a lot of people. And then also, you know, once I had flu or something and I, and I was very drowsy and sleepy, but I still got more work done because every time I woke up, I could write a bit more of something I was doing and then go back to sleep again and write a bit more. You know, you can, it's amazing what you can get done like, that way, which brings one back to lockdown when, of course, there were no interruptions at all and you had endless time to work which is wonderful in my case you know all the government asked me to do was to keep out of the way and I was perfectly prepared to do that and I never felt guilty about anything because you know I was doing if I watched a film in the afternoon I was actually doing good for once you know because I was keeping out of the way and I went down to the country and I was, I've got this house in Wiltshire in the middle of Salisbury Plain and so I could walk along around the plain and nobody I wouldn't meet anybody so I wasn't exactly restricted it wasn't like being in a in a small apartment or something, you know, so that was great. Um, no, I loved it. I thought it was marvellous. And no travelling and no, no day, all the, everything that I was doing got cancelled, as I'm sure I did for you, you know, every single thing. And therefore, it was possible to structure your time, you know. I know that you were supposed to do like a big sort of lecture tour in America, right? Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I did give lectures in Toronto, 
Palm Beach, the Colony Club New York, and the club in Connecticut and San Francisco, but all from Zoom, from my from my Wiltshire home, which was nice. But I'm meant to be coming back. I'm coming. I'm meant to be going to Palm Beach, San Francisco, and New York in March. What are you working on right now? I mean, are the, are, are the diaries finished? Your diaries finished? Or? The diaries have been published over here and they're about to be published. I mean, they, they exist in New York already. And uh, I don't know if it's a secret or not. Anyway, I'm doing a book with a member, a, a member of the royal family. I'm doing some, I'll just say that for the moment. I mean, I, I don't think I really want to put it out into the open quite quite yet, but um, it'll come out next April, which is based on sort of conversations and going through this person's life and then bringing in other voices to speak. I, I quite like that way that George Plimpton did those books on Truman Capote and things where different voices speak and the story moves forward. Mm -hmm. And occasionally it's quite fun to get some of this person's um, relations to talk as well. But anyway, I'll tell you about it when I can, but it hasn't been announced yet, but it's not nearly, it's nearly finished. Looking back over everything in your life, personal and career, what are you most proud of? Oh, I suppose just keeping going, really. <laughs> With the books, if I ask, if I have a favourite book, obviously it was the Gladys Deacon, Gladys Deacon one, the first one, because it was so difficult to get it published and it was such an adventure. And I think it's a story that will stay with me forever, you know, because she was such an important, you know, by, by me going to find her, that changed my life completely. Mm -hmm. Subtle Beaton, I suppose, was more commercial or more, you know, more widely known and read. And that was that was good as well. But um, I think it's it's just really nice to do things that that, that you find interesting to, to explore these things. It's a great privilege, isn't it? You know, to to immerse yourself in those things. On the whole, I think I've been pretty, pretty lucky. I mean, I could make it sound all as though just one thing just moved easily and successfully from another. Not so, of course, at all. Everything is equally very stressful at times, you know, and you go through endless stress, you know, about publishers and you know, copyrights and also, and, you know, whether it's working or not and whether people will like it. And so, you know, I, I've certainly, and certainly the diaries have reminded me of the, of the angst at certain times and this la and lack of security, of course. If I don't work, I don't get paid and there's no, I haven't got an office backing me, you know, whereas if, you, if you're in an office and you, you can have sick leave and things and you'll still be paid. If I don't work, nothing happens. But I think that's quite good for me, actually. So it keeps me going. But yes, I mean, what would I like to, I mean, I would, I would like to complete my, the walkways. Uh, I, that should be possible to do quite soon. And I, um, that's a project which has been, I've been working on since 2002, really. It's quite a long time now. So that'd be a 20 year project. You know, maybe there's a couple more books to do. I will never retire unless I go blind or something and I'm forced to retire. But I think that's the lovely thing about being a writer. You don't actually have to. I would like a little bit more time to read, I must say, for pleasure. And I do need to read the whole of Proust. I am so immersed in Proust. I've even met people who knew Proust and I've only read half of it so far in English. Um, but I um, somehow I do it normally on, on disc to listen to it. But I because I wasn't driving, around very much I, I, I stopped and then in lockdown I didn't do it but I've got to do that if I find myself lying on a deathbed and find I haven't read Proust I'll be very very put out have you read it I've only read Swan's Way so yes I have a lot to get a lot to do yeah, it's, it's fun it's fun in places it's mm -hmm. quite hard going sometimes but yeah. I, people do love it and so I'd like to do that I would like to do that I mean is there anything else that you feel like you'd like to say or add well, it's been great fun talking about these things. Thank you for having me along. Now I really want to read your 
book on Gladys. Gladys, yes, the Sphinx. Yes, that is out and about in America now. I think how, on how much did you have to? How much did you change between the two, the first edition and the more recent? And I, um, a lot of it is the same, but I did, I did re. I mean, I did rewrite every word, but not every word is different, if that makes sense. But I restructured it in certain places. And, and what was so wonderful was to find all this new information, thanks to the release of more papers. She was a great friend of Bernard Berenson, the art historian. And Mrs. Berenson used to write every day to her mother from Itati, the villa they lived in in, in Settignano, north of Florence. Those letters weren't available for me the first time round. And they, they gave the story of Gladys and her mother right the way through from 1899, very thoroughly right through till about 1910 and a little bit beyond. And so that was wonderful. And there were other things that, that, that had come to light. So, so I did change. Yes, I did change quite a lot. And also, as I say, I felt I could say more than the, the previous time. But she's a fascinating figure. You either, you either like her or you don't like her, but I think she was wonderful. She's certainly not boring. <laughs> That's exactly what you want in a biography. Yeah. So I think there's, there's quite a lot of new material. It was, and I also rearranged it, you know, in, in different ways to make it more... I cut certain bits as well, which didn't seem to be so interesting from the first one. I think it's a better book. I think it's better, really. And, of course, I was able to correct some things because I didn't have the internet to... You know, when you get an obscure Italian name or something and way back in the 70s, it was impossible for me, I don't know, to find a, to check it. Well, probably wasn't, but I didn't do so. And so I was horrified to find some mistakes, you know, but that, that always happened. But you could just flip them straight into the internet and get the, the right name of the street or whatever. Mm -hmm. And look it up on Google Maps and see where it is. And... I'm very excited to read about it, just based on what I know about her life. Very interesting. Very up my alley. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much. No, well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it hugely too. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Hugo Vickers. If you enjoyed it, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing with your friends. I would love to get these conversations out to everyone who might benefit from them. Please head to our new website to read a short article and to learn more about his books. See you next week. <laughs>